If you have your Bibles, again, I want you to go to John chapter 8, and we're going to be looking at verses 37 to 59. That's the end of the chapter, and you guys might be nervous if you're thinking that this is Steve preaching this many verses, but I promise you, this is just basically a 25,000-foot overview of this passage as we come to the table of the Lord. Now, I have to warn you, though, about this passage, all right, because it's not easy sometimes to read and preach certain passages of Scripture. I'm not going to lie to you, especially when this passage falls or seems to collide with Communion Sunday. This is the first Sunday in March. Our tradition here at Calvary is on the first Sunday of the month to do communion. You see, John chapter 8, verses 37 to 59 are actually words filled with confrontation and false accusation There is one absolutely incredible proclamation, and then there is one tragic, devastating rejection. But I couldn't help but think that this is actually a great passage for us today, because it's a wonderful reminder for us this morning of an incredible challenge. John 8, 37 to 59 gives us some wonderful boundaries to watch for, one amazing promise in the middle of the passage, and the most precious and eternal proclamation that I think we need not only today, but to cling to every day of our lives. Now, for most of you here in this room, as I'm looking out, because most of you I know, you have heard this verse where Paul says in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God or the woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And those of you that come to our church, as I've been preaching through the gospel of John, know that every time I've preached, I have quoted this verse, which is John chapter 20, 30 and 31, where John tells us, here's why I've written this gospel to you. And he says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. You see, John holds seven great signs. I'll explain that in a minute with seven I am statements in his gospel. And really, it culminates with an eighth sign, which is the resurrection. But John says, look, I have chosen these seven, eight signs for you. And there are many other ones, but these I chose so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. There's his agenda. He doesn't hide it. He says to you, here's why I wrote this, and then here's the result of this, that by believing you may have life in his name. And so for us this morning on this Communion Sunday, by the way, can you believe that two months of this year are gone? Can that, will that just shock you for a minute? We're already two months into 2019. I don't know about you, but the older I get, the faster time goes, and I would just like to show it, slow it down a little bit. But here, a passage like this that even makes me nervous, maybe a passage that's not the easiest or the happiest to preach, is still the very Word of God. And just like when Jesus showed up to the synagogue in Nazareth, if you've read the other Gospels, and he read that day from Isaiah chapter 64, a passage that was to be read on that very day. So here we are on March the 3rd of 2019. And I submit to you that this Sunday, this communion Sunday, that you are here by divine appointment. And if you and I will all hear and listen to this passage of Scripture and hear from God through his Spirit because of Jesus Christ we will be changed and encouraged today. You see, we're going to finish up this massive section, verses 37 to 59, and John, as I just read, has an agenda. 
His goal is that by the end of reading this, you will come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He skillfully laid out all of this for us in the most wonderful introduction in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. And we're shown these signs and statements of Jesus in a series of conversations. And that's why I titled my sermon series, Conversations with Christ. Because all along, Jesus is having a conversation either with a group of people or an individual. And in case you've forgotten or you haven't been along for the ride all through, the Gospel of John has the introduction, chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, and then a conclusion, which is basically all of chapter 21. And in between, there's two major sections. Chapter 1, verse 20 to chapter 12, verse 50, commentators call it the book of signs. And we've seen five of those seven signs already. In chapters 13, verse 1, to chapter 20, verse 31, it's called the book of glory. And that's because it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, along with his big, long discourse in John chapter 13 to 17. But after the introduction in chapter 1, Jesus shows himself to the world in a series of words and deeds. And we've looked at them already. In chapter 2, there's turning water into wine. And I don't know you, that would shock a wedding. That would make it. You know we live in a world of viral videos when celebrities or people will sometimes pop in on wedding ceremonies and people sing. I saw one just the other day of Bon Jovi just happened to be by, so he went in and sang at this wedding after they were doing their reception. And so Jesus turns water into wine. Next, he heals the nobleman's son. After that, he heals the man that had been paralyzed for 38 years by the pool of Bethesda. Then there's the feeding of the 5,000, the only miracle that's recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then finally, as we head towards these things, he also makes some major statements. In John chapter 5, he says, I am the bread of life. In John chapter 8, he said, I am the light of the world. And there are two more signs to come, and I can't wait to get to the sixth sign, which is John chapter 9, my favorite chapter in all the Bible. And then we come to John chapter 8. And by the time I read this passage, I think we have the most incredible I am statement of Jesus in the whole book and maybe even in the whole world. You see, as Jesus has been talking and acting, so the opposition to him has also been gaining ground as well. And it all culminates at the end of John chapter 8. And from here, the religious leaders have only one goal. We must get rid of Jesus. He's got to go. And that's where we're going to find ourselves today. At the apex of the arguments. But rather, I said, rather than pull this thing apart, I just want to give you an overview. So let me read the passage. I'm going to just break it into three little parts for a few minutes, give you three, I think, living applications that we can take. So the title of my sermon for today is that the Lord of this table is the great I am. If you know uh, the, the group that sings now, Phillips, Craig, and Dean, they actually sing a song called The Great I Am. And that's one of the ways I got this was the Lord of this table, the host of this table is the great I am. So let me read this passage and I'm going to try and read it maybe in the character by which the argumentation would have happened. I want to give you kind of the feelings and the emotions of the passage. So here we are at the temple Hold that into place. And in verse 37, Jesus is responding to the Israelites because they've said that they are the descendants of Abraham. And in verse 37, he says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. 
I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Then they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works your father did. So they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And so Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are from your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He, Satan, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar. In fact, he's the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Let me ask you this. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And so the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? You're spiritually decrepit, Jesus. And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you. Now listen to this. If you mark in your Bibles, underline this. If anyone keeps my word, he or she will never see death. So the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Because Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall not taste death. Then they ask him this question. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is indeed nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God, but you have not known Him. See, I know Him. If I were to say that I did not know Him, I would be a liar like you, but I know Him and I keep His word. Your father, Abraham? He rejoiced that he would see my day. He sighed and was glad. And so the Jews said to him, listen, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Now catch this. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And here was their reaction. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. I just want to give you a couple of little insights. I don't know if they'll be on the screen or not, but if you want to take notes, they're on the back of your bulletin. I want you to see just in this as we come to communion this morning. First, Jesus tells the Jews and indeed us 
physical heritage does not mean spiritual relationship. A physical heritage doesn't mean you've got a spiritual relationship. You see, the crowd that was here before Jesus, and didn't ca- don't forget this, they're in the temple, and don't miss the irony of that. They're in the temple that God had instructed Solomon how to build, where once the Shekinah glory, the presence of God would dwell, and here they are now, centuries later, the Ark of the Covenant is gone, they're longing for the presence of God, God in the flesh is right in front of them, and they're like, where's God? He's not here. And so they claim to be Abraham's physical children. They claim to be Abraham's spiritual children. They claim that they're God's children. But Jesus keeps pointing them back to the one who they claim to be from. He says, basically, okay, okay, if you're truly Abraham's seed, then here's, a, here's an idea. Act like he did. Act like he did. You see, if you go back to Genesis, Abraham prayed to God. He prayed to Jesus. He listened to him. He trusted me, Jesus says. He obeyed me. He confessed to me. And yet you try to kill me. Twice in those opening verses, he says, you're trying to kill me. You argue with me and you demean me. And then secondly, notice, Jesus explains to this crowd, religious tradition doesn't mean God is your father. Because they started with, we are descendants of Abraham. Then they moved to Abraham's our father. And when that didn't work, they ratcheted up even more and they go, well, God is our father. He says, basically, if God is your father, then why don't you know me? Why don't you know me? If you notice, they, uh, they say this thing here in this passage where they go, we weren't born of sexual immorality. Now, do you not think that maybe that's taken a shot at Jesus' birth? You remember how the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin, but we know the controversy around that, right? Mary was pregnant before she was b- b- married to Joseph. In fact, Joseph himself wondered if he should put her away in divorce. Remember, at this point, Jesus' brothers don't believe in him. So maybe by now the word has gotten out that there was controversy around Jesus' birth. And so maybe this is a little shot. And remember, Jesus has already been accused of being a drunkard and a glutton, a friend of sinners. When they say a Samaritan, they basically mean you're an outsider. And you've got to realize the, the collectiveness of the Gospel of John. Remember back in John chapter 1, it was John who said, He came unto his own, and his own people did not receive him. And so here he is, offering himself, and they're like, No, 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 we'd rather argue with, about, with you about our traditions. Is that not fitting for us in Newfoundland in the 21st century? We still live in one of the most traditional provinces in Canada, where often people think, I may not even be loyal to my church, but I was born and raised with a particular label, and that's my label. And therefore, I'm right with God. You see, we're separated by 2,200 or 20, uh, 20 centuries, but the argumentation is still the same. But notice what Jesus says. And I tried to give this to him when I read this passage. He doesn't threaten the people. He doesn't argue with them. He simply says, look, if you really understood who I am and what I'm offering you, You'd love me. You'd love me. He goes on to ask them the question, which I find fascinating. Who of you convicts me of sin? I don't know, but does this not all remind you of maybe John chapter 7, 53 to 8, 11, with the woman who was caught in adultery, and Jesus says, you, any of you who is without this sin, cast the first stone. And now in this same time, Jesus looks at them and says, who of you convicts me of sin? 
And if you want, let me bring this passage into a 21st century. Because really what this all boils down to, and again, if you want to think about this, what we deal with in life today in our churches as Christians, what you're struggling with if you're not a believer or you're struggling with your faith is truth versus a lie or lies. You see, God's honor and his integrity, the validity of Jesus, the power of the gospel versus Satan's lies. You see, even the Jews in the first century had a postmodern reasoning. Basically, they could boil it all down to this. Okay, Jesus, listen, if you're not a liar, then look, you've got your version of the church truth and we've got our version of the truth. So keep yours, but don't bug us about it. And we've seen this on display just this last week. I don't know about you, but I've been glued to the television, both in the United States and Canada, as I've watched the lawyer of President Trump talk about everything that's been going on in Mr. Trump's life. And even in our own country, were you not uh, just spellbound when our former attorney general had to testify before the Justice Committee? And I don't know if you caught this, but after she testified, our chief negotiator that represents Canada, Mrs. Freeland, she said this of Mrs. Wilson-Raybould, I believe that she spoke her truth. That's what she said. She spoke her truth. In fact... Even Mrs. Raybould would say, this is my truth. And friends, this is as a pastor and friend of mine said, this postmodern idea has captured Canada's elites and it's deeply disturbing. If truths are not objective, then the only thing we can decide between my truth and your truth is brute force. And no wonder the rule of law is eroding. Hence, when you have this, this was Jesus' truth versus their version of the truth. And when you get down to it, what do they do? When he makes his big, bold pronouncement, I am, they pick up stones to kill him. We're back to brute force. And you can see that happening. See, Jesus is pointing out what Tim Keller explains. In religion, you obey because God is useful. And this is my burden. I know I say this a lot, but I know so many of you. I know the traditions and backgrounds by which you come from and how you were raised. And so many of you have a gospel that says, I got to keep God happy or me and God are in a contract. And as long as I do what he wants me to do, then he's got to do what I want him to do. But the problem is when that goes astray, everybody then either struggles with disillusionment or bitterness. You see, Keller says, in religion, you obey because God is useful, but in Christianity, you obey because God is beautiful. Here he is, the great I am. The Lord of our table is the great I am. You see, when they saw Jesus and effect God, they saw him only as a means to an end. And that actually proved that they were the ch- not the children of God, but rather Satan. And folks, listen, even as us for, as professing Christians, we got to see this because I think it's easy for us to go, poor Jewish crowd. They just didn't know Jesus. But let me read you a passage from Matthew 16. Peter, remember when Jesus comes down and he says, who do men say that I am? And Jesus says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, Peter, flesh and blood didn't show this to you. This came by divine revelation and I will build my my rock and all these types of things. But just in the next verses, Jesus goes on to say, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now watch this, this same Peter. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Can you imagine if Peter ever got his way in this? He's looking at Jesus going, I don't want you to die. And Jesus, look at his response. 
get behind me, Satan. He goes from thou art the rock to get behind me, Satan. You know what the difference is? Peter is believing a lie. He's believing that his way of doing things is better than God's plan for doing things. Notice he says, you are a hindrance to me. Why? For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Calvary Baptist, to make our time today as communion day extra meaningful, and not simply tradition, I challenge you to not only participate in this with me this morning, but to anticipate the return of Christ. And by the way, reciprocate your love for Jesus because he loves you first. And then finally, Jesus says in verses 48 to 59, he is greater than physical heritage or religious tradition. You see, verses 48 to 59 are the climax of what started all the way back in John 8, 12, when he said, I am the light of the world. And it'll bring us to that point of rejection by the audience and there to a point of decision for the reader. And I believe a point of understanding for you and I as professing Christians. See, John ends this section showing us a people who will dishonor Jesus, but Jesus honors Father God. God honors him. We see a people who doubt Jesus, but Jesus shows us his example of trusting God, his father, and keeping his word. We see a people who will defy Jesus by trying to actually kill him, but Jesus disappears, showing us his power and that God's plan will always prevail. But I told you that there's this one magnificent promise in the middle of this passage that I want us to take into the table of the Lord. Look at verse 51. Jesus says, truly, truly. Now, if you have a King James Bible, you remember, you remember these two words, verily, verily? Remember that in John chapter 3? Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That, that's a marker where John wants you to pay attention. This is, Jesus is really bringing something out to for us. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you. Now, notice this. If anyone keeps my word, he or she will never see death. Can I ask you, do you believe that this morning? No matter what your life is like, this communion table before us, if you're going to be free and you want to live and you want to have peace and you want to make sense of life and handle all of the weird things that you face in the real day-to-day of life, you've got to trust Jesus and the word of God to us. Jesus says, listen, if you keep my word, you will not see death. Oh, I know that some of you might say, well, Steve, I may die, yes, physically, but not spiritually. And in fact, as one man put it, you will simply close your eyes in this reality and open them up into eternal reality where you will suffer no more. Now, do you live like that? That's what this table represents. Jesus defines sonship and daughtership, not in terms of biology, but in terms of obedience. And so as we come to the table of the Lord, and if Jesus is the Lord of this table, then that means some things. Church, listen, that means he's better. He's greater. He's over anyone and everyone, including you and me. It means we can more than just participate this morning. It means you can trust what it stands for. It means you can bring your sin and your hurts and your questions and your successes and your failures, even your bitternesses and your, 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 just your struggles with where God has been, maybe through some of the dark seasons of your life. Because this table says Jesus is God. 
that Jesus is the only way to know truth and be truly free, to have a true and lasting hope. It means that Jesus is our source of strength and our motive to change our lives. It means we can read the Bible and trust what it says, even in the 21st century. I have a friend of mine, a pastor friend, Matt Smathurst, and he reminds us of what Jesus is proclaiming to this massively diverse group of Jews. You see, I'm looking out at your faces, and while I know of you, I'm acquainted with every one of you as I look out. Have you ever really assumed just how diverse we are in this room? I think all too often we can come to church and assume we're all alike, that we all see things the same, that a sermon or a service is meant to be tailored for all of us, and yet we are all so different. Right here in this room this morning, there are males and females, there are young and old, there are singles and marrieds and divorced and widows and widowers. Some of you are parents and some of you are grandparents. We have a few students here and workers. Some of us own homes and others rent. Some of us are from Newfoundlanders born and bred. Others are come from away, as we so lovingly say here in our province, right? And yet in John chapter 8, Jesus is blunt, but he's also loving and gracious. He's telling this group of folks the truth. He's pleading with them, don't cling to your religion. Don't refuse to hear me or accept me or trust me. I'm God. I'm right here for you, and I'm better. I think the writer of Hebrews must have read John before he wrote, because in the book of Hebrews, we find out that Jesus offers us better things. He offers us better hope. He offers us a better covenant. He offers us better promises. He is the better sacrifice that's once for all in Hebrews 9, 23. He offers us a better possession. He offers us a better home. He offers us a better resurrection. He offers us a better word. And the difference is King Jesus, the Lord of this table. My friend and brother Steve, this past week on Thursday, he put this on his Facebook, and I'm going to tickle his ego here. I'm going to quote Steve Daw in my sermon. He said on his Facebook status this past week, isn't it interesting how what Jesus really meant always accords with the opinion and biases of the reader? In other words, what he's saying is people often read the Bible and go, this is what it means to me as if somehow now we're the authority. And that's exactly what's going on in our passage. The Jews are deciding what Jesus must mean. And then they're telling him, God in the flesh, what he should be saying, what he needs to know. But Jesus very calmly looks at his very own creation and says, I'm truth. I'm truth. And so the table of the Lord here before us is not something we can decide how important it is or what it means. In fact, I think we should never use this means to me language, but rather I am learning what God's word is telling me. They wanted to argue that Abraham and the prophets had died. They pointed out that Jesus wasn't even 50. But what Jesus does next blows them away. Look at verse 58. And Jesus said to them, and notice again, truly, truly, that emphasis. He says, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus proclaims clearly, I am God. I am God in the flesh, and I'm here for a purpose. And friends, listen to me as one pastor writes, on the cross, Jesus took the punishment that our sins deserve, thereby moving our judgment, they get this, from the future to the past. In Jesus, we are already completely forgiven, so we have nothing left to fear. 
Oh my goodness, how I wish I could get my friends and peer groups and my, the people that I go to just to stop living in fear. To stop being afraid. And as we come to the table of the Lord, we see that the crowd's response, in verse 59, they pick up stones to kill him. But those of us who trust him respond in faith. This table, this table is our holy opportunity to rejoice and to refocus and to realign ourselves with the Lord of the table because he's the great I am. And so I just want to ask you three things. Here's what's been on my heart as I've been studying this, and it's been actually coming up a lot more in my life because here's the struggle I think we're having in a 21st century world that I think we can take as an application from these verses. Three things that stand out to me in all of John really up to this point. What was competing for people to truly grasp Christ, to truly know him from the youngest of you to the oldest? Number one, if you write down, number one was distractions. They were distracted. Do you see what was happening? Folks are distracted by their religion, their heritage. They're even distracted by their needs and their wants and desires. They're distracted by their own emotions or feelings. Some of them were hungry. Some of them wanted acceptance. Some of them wanted freedom. Some of them wanted justice. They're distracted by power or con- and tradition. And can I, like, are we not distracted today? We argue the fine issues of something only to miss the main point. We feel conviction for sin or have this nagging doubt or this recurring fear. And what do we do? All too often, we bury ourselves in work. We bury ourselves in fun or substances. How about our phones? How, how do these distract us? I know some of you very well meaningly bring these and say, oh, well, my Bible's on my phone, but then so is every text and every Facebook alert and every push notice. And next thing you know, you're not focused on Christ. You're distracted. We're distracted. Television distracts us. Now we have Netflix and Crave TV and countless channels. Sports distract us. For some of you, there's a whole generation where video games is the number one distraction. And you see, right now we're back to the Garden of Eden because you know what Satan did with Eve? He distracted her. He distracted her. What did he say? Look at this tree. Look at this. Don't listen to God. Look at this. Listen to me. You see, Satan basically lied to Eve and has been lying to humanity ever since. God will always be that do's and don'ts guy. You don't want to listen to him. I'll just tell you, you can. I'll be the you can guy. And the Jews in our passage are distracted. They're distracted by their desires of freedom and purpose, but convinced that their traditions and their heritage and their religion would give them what they're still looking for. And so when Jesus comes and tells them the truth, they can't even see it or even tolerate it because they're too busy being distracted by their way of life and their way of thinking and their very established habits of dealing with life. I have said, Jennifer and I talk about this all the time as counselors. When I counsel people, I have said ad nauseum, people would rather the hell they know than the hell they don't know. People come to me all the time and say, my life's a mess. And then you lay out how God will change them. They're like, well, that scares me because I don't know that. And so many people, as C.S. Lewis said, are content to make mud pies in a puddle when God offers them a vacation at the beach. Distractions. And then next is lies. We live in the culture of fake news. 
Satan is the father of lies, our passage says. And listen, Jesus does have some harsh, judgmental, even condemning things to say to this crowd. But let's be honest, it does make us uncomfortable when we read it. Jesus tells human beings, souls, that they're going to die in their sin. And John's been setting us up for this harsh reality. See, we love to say John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But then we stop reading because the very next verse, verse says, if you don't believe in God, you're condemned already. We love Ephesians 2 where it says that God loved us with a great love, but few of us will remember Matthew 7, 22, where Jesus says, they will, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. But now think of what Jesus was and says. He looks at these people and he says, you're of your father, the devil. You see, too often we associate these strong words in the Bible as if God was somehow angry or or exerting some sort of weird superiority, and he's not, because just a few chapters later in John chapter 11, Jesus is going to stand before a sealed grave that holds the body of Lazarus, and it says that Jesus wept. And we're going to look at the fact that Jesus wept because he looked around him and he saw the sorrow and the sadness and the grips of sin all over this. Just before hours before he would go to the cross, he would weep over Jerusalem and say, listen, if you would just know how much I love you as a hen mothers her chicks, I would mother you. You see, Jesus' blunt words were motivated by love for truth and love for us all. And Jesus is the embodiment of truth and love. You see, Satan lies to you so he can destroy you. The world lies to you so it can enslave you. We lie to ourselves so we can avoid dealing with the uncomfortable truth. But Jesus doesn't lie. In Hebrews 6, it tells us that God cannot lie. Listen to the writer. He says, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Why? So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And so, my friends, come to this table knowing that the great I am always tells us the truth. Jesus will not lie to you. And if you're a sinner, and indeed you are, because I am, we are in need of a Savior. You see, Satan will lie to you about God and Jesus in the Bible. He'll try to make you believe that God is angry at you or wants to control you or isn't telling you the whole story. Or most of all, he'll lie to you and say, Jesus or God is holding something back from you. The world will lie to you and tell you that it won't hurt or it won't have consequences. And you're going to lie to yourselves. And some of you did it even this morning where you say, I can handle this. I won't lose control, or this feels good, or it can't be that bad. And behind all of it, you're right back to the Garden of Eden. And that's why Jesus would say in Matthew 11, Come to me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then finally again, longing. Here's the word. Our struggles are with distractions, our struggles are with lies, and our struggle is with longings. The amazing thing that we've seen over and over again with all the conversations with Jesus up to this point, the thing that John the Apostle is trying to get us see is that we're all longing and looking for something. Everyone in here is longing and looking for something. Purpose, acceptance, healing, freedom, peace, safety. But what will you do? And I do this morning. Listen to the father of lies. 
or listen to Jesus, the great I am. They were easily distracted by their own emotions or hurts. And we can often let our longings override Jesus' truth. But friends, the difference between longing and resting is to whom you will trust and lean on, Christ or the world, you or Jesus, money or Messiah. You see, this table is for us who've said humbly and bravely and urgently and convinced, Jesus is the great I am, and I believe him, and I trust in him, and I love him, and I want to be like him, and I long to know him, and I want to be around him and to know him more deeply, and I will give up being distracted like that poor dog in the movie Up, right, squirrel? That's how many of you as adults live your life. I need Jesus. Money. I need Jesus. Relationships. And we're just distracted or we believe the lies. But we can say this morning, no, I believe. That's right. I believe in Jesus. And like George Beverly Shea, when he wrote that old hymn and made it famous, I'd rather have Jesus. He'd say, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hands. Oh, I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name. You see, he's fairer than the lilies of rarest bloom, and he's sweeter than honey from out of the comb. He's all that my hungering spirit needs. I'd rather have Jesus and let him lead than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. Oh, I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. You know, many of you know that song because of George Beverly Shea singing it at Billy Graham Crusades. But do you actually know it was written by a Prince Oscar Bernadotte in 1888? He was in line for the throne of Sweden and he gave it all up in order to marry a commoner who had witnessed to him and led him to Christ. And he gave up a kingdom to follow the King of Kings and Lord of Lords.